As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, Blinders, on this week's show, the Golden Globes return to TV. Don't worry, darling, hits theaters. And director Baz Luhrmann joins the show to discuss Elvis's home video launch. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 229 of Real Blend, a podcast that hopes that every Oscar contender moving forward includes as much silly Brad Pitt as we saw in the Babylon trailer. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend. And if you haven't seen that trailer, please go out and see it sometime soon. It looks like Damien is turning it up to uh, 12 as he tries to capture the roaring 20s of Hollywood. I'm sure we'll be discussing that uh, as we go through. He the is definitely rushing and not dragging. And, <laughs> and also real blend guest uh, Damien Chazelle. That's true. Yes. If you, it, it, yeah. If we hope returning real blend guest. Yeah. If you missed that, that interview, please seek it out because he was awesome. It was like early on in the pandemic. He had a Netflix sh- uh, show that was out and it was just like we were just getting him in his element. It was like it was just hit him at home and like those pandemic, about- those early pandemic episodes are weird. Yeah. Um, who We got Michael Shannon just like in his house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's in his office. <laughs> Shooting the breeze. Barry Sonnenfeld. Really Sonnenfeld yeah. that oh, we had to edit. Sonnenfeld was a trip. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On this week's show, uh, believe it or not, the Golden Globes are going to return to television. Uh, and that was a surprising announcement that dropped on the day that we were recording. So we're going to dive into were that you surprised? a little bit. I really was. Yeah, yeah. I, I really thought that that. How, how about we discuss it in the segment? Where we're going to discuss that. <laughs> we, yeah, we should talk about it on the show. There we I go. Guess so. uh, Sorry, don't, worry, don't, bad. don't worry, darling is going to hit theaters. And, Kevin, what do um, you think of that movie? Two of the guys. Oh, have seen let me it. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> And we have a really exciting interview uh, in Baz Luhrmann, who is going to be joining us to talk about Elvis uh, on behalf of the home video launch. Uh, you may recall we didn't get Baz the first time through uh, because this up and comer, uh, Tom Hanks, wanted some time on the show. And so if you haven't checked out Tom Hanks on the Real Blend podcast, please go back and redo that. And then we were thrilled to have Baz circle back around and join us uh, as the home video segment was uh, coming to pass. So Elvis is coming. You can see I, it's on HBO Max right now. I've seen mm-hmm. it available for streaming and I think you'll be able to own it. And oh, I showed the guys this before. I have multiple. I have this cover. 
uh, and I have this cover, Ooh. and I have um, that's it, just those two, <laughs> just those two covers. <laughs> well, I really like, thought that was going to be the beginning of the, like a long list of covers. Nope, I thought he was going to bring out one of the, a, a jumpsuit, and he was like, "And I have this jumpsuit." <laughs> the 4K cover is the best one, though. Yeah, I love the Tom, 4K cover. Tom is still wearing the the jumpsuit with the with the glued on side. For <laughs> I thought you were kidding. <laughs> uh, let me welcome the, the the boys to the show. Jake Hamilton and his dog Daenerys chiming in from Chicago. Uh, Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jakey. How are you? Hi, buddy. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is in Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. and was recently in Chicago to hang out Hello. with Jake. Hi, Kev. Uh, good to see you all. Yeah, I was in Chicago for bros. Uh, Jake and I went and saw bros in Amsterdam together. And then, uh, yeah, so now I'm back and talking to you guys as always. Ready Love you guys. Do a show. And then Gabe Kovach is uh, holding down the fort uh, with a bit of bronchitis under the weather, but doing well. How are you, Gabe? I'm good. I'm good. Bronchitis sounds a lot worse than it is, but uh, I'm good. Yes. Speaking of bros, though, Sean, is that, yes. does that remind you of anything that we should let our audience oh. know? Speaking of bros, things they can look forward to? There is an interview question. that's in the can. Uh, where Hashtag we it had- happened. Where we had well, what, so when is it going to run? Do we know next Should week? Be next week, yeah, for release next yeah. week sometime. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, Nicholas Stoller, the director of Bros, uh, who also has helmed uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Two Neighbors films, uh, and has now tackled Bros, uh, is joined by uh, producer and comedian extraordinaire Judd Apatow, a return guest to the Real Blend podcast, and the two of them are going to be joining us to discuss Bros. And their comedic careers. We got into the the state of rom coms and how they tend to treat them. We talked a lot about heavyweights, which was unexpected. We went on a real heavyweight tangent. Uh, Tony Perkis, yes. Uh, the draw of working with Billy, uh, Billy Eichner, and um, so we were really thrilled to get those guys to come on to Real Blind, and you guys will be able to hear that next week as Bros gets a little bit closer to release so um let's go through the housekeeping stuff in terms of uh if you're watching us on youtube thank you so much make sure you hit like and subscribe turn on your notifications we are inching closer to ten thousand subscribers and um i see your comments about my ocd and a nice round <laughs> number uh and i appreciate you that's very kind of you to get uh, to to think about me in that way um so let's push to ten thousand uh and and then sit there for a while so we don't mess it up um we have uh of course are available all the places you get your audio podcast needs met uh and then the premium the real blend premium which drops every monday uh an ad-free version of the show a newsletter that's coming to you guys this week um and then uh what was i gonna say oh and then a bonus episode a bonus (laughs) episode that drops on monday where we normally play some type of really fun game i think this week we're going to be doing the mailbag uh, to answer a bunch of questions and you get i don't blenders. think you said this you also get ad free versions of this very show right here this main That's show true. yes very true um so there's a lot of reasons to sign up for premium but but essentially it's the it's the looser you know more casual real blends having a sleepover uh and we're just gonna stay up all night talk about uh fun things vibe so uh that's that's the type of thing you get out of premium and i advise everybody to go down and check it out and if you're doing it right now we thank you in advance for uh for supporting us in that way. We love all you guys uh, equally. Um, as mentioned, Baz Lerman is going to be joining the show. Uh, he is stopping by to talk about uh, Elvis and he's just the nicest guy. He's uh, Baz cracks me up because he doesn't view himself as a filmmaker, um, but, but he currently Elvis is his highest grossing film uh, in his career. <laughs> so he's clear, clearly connecting with larger audiences. 
But I loved in this conversation, he gets really candid about how he felt Elvis was going to play um, in certain markets, like how it would do better in America and particularly the Midwest or the the South, the Deep South. Um, but then that there are like international markets where Elvis is extremely popular and he thought that the movie would do really well there. Uh, he talked a bit about the four hour version cut that he could do. He talked about the support they got from the Presley family in Graceland. So a really great conversation that I am delaying by telling you everything that's in it. So let's jump right to uh, Baz Luhrmann as a guest on the Real Blend podcast uh, starting right now. Uh, we, you know, we so rarely get to talk with a filmmaker after the film has come out. And obviously this movie was incredibly successful. It was the most successful film of your entire career domestically. Uh, you don't make movies very often. So when they are successful, what does that do for you as a storyteller? And, and how did you feel not just that that really great, solid opening weekend, but how did you feel week for week when you saw those yeah. minimal drops between week two and week three and week yeah. four? I mean, that's more telling than a big opening weekend. I want you. Uh so right about that. And I will tell you that you, like I'm still here, <laughs> if anyone noticed, right? <laughs> uh, and what I mean is, is that, yes, it went out on HBO Max on the weekend. Yes, we're VOD working backwards. Yes, we had an opening weekend, remembering that my focus was how to get older audiences into the theater and find a, a young audience for Elvis. So, you know, um, and then a whole other uh, journey starts but to answer your question I mean nice edge you know like there's a lot of look 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 I've used this metaphor before um but it really is like I mean I've had kids so it's a bit like having a baby you know there's a bit of flirting when the idea goes on mm. before play you know then the deed happens and <laughs> whoa we're pregnant you know and that production <laughs> And then, you know, it's, 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 it's the birth. And, you know, if that goes technically right, you just want to make sure that the newborn isn't clubbed to death like a baby seal by, you know, <laughs> those that might not want to see it, see the light of day. And then it starts to grow up. Now, the birth moment is that opening weekend because you're right. If we came out and it was like, oh, interesting film, but not enough box office just to get in the race, you know that? I wouldn't say the child is stillborn, right? But that's a difficult birth. But we had a really strong, clear birth. The question is, is it going to grow up? And as I speak to you now, because it's now gone on that journey, it's like that baby has grown up and is beyond a teenager and is going off to college. It's It's got a relationship going on outside of me. Like, it's got nothing to do with me now. You know, I just I just gave birth. You know? <laughs> Interesting. I do want to drill down on a specific aspect of that and just get your impressions of how you might have predicted. Now, of course, no filmmaker really wants to predict success or failure. And as you say, you just sort of send it out into the world. But I find it really interesting that of your films, it's the highest grossing domestic. Um, yep. and, and if it did a little bit better uh, worldwide, it would have topped El it would have topped Great Gatsby, which would have been your highest grossing film of all time. Did yes. you did you think or predict that it would do better in the States just because of of Elvis's popularity here? And as is reflected in your movie, uh, he didn't necessarily get the exposure overseas that he wanted to have. Mm. You know what? I would say, I would say good, good question. Because actually I, my films have traditionally done better. Usually it's not just Gatsby. They've, in, they've done better internationally than domestically. 
you know, Gatsby did really well. I mean, Leonardo, Jay-Z, the music we did, all that work. But the fact that Elvis did well in the US, I mean, there were areas where I thought we might have done a little more just because he didn't go there, you know, like, like it's amazing. Like the number one expert on Elvis is, is comes from Scandinavia, you know, like he's oh, the wow. number one expert, like above and beyond everybody else in the world. Um, you know, the, 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 the mayor of Tokyo at one stage put a, a statue up to Elvis. That's how loved he is in Japan. I mean, the recently uh, assassinated Japanese prime minister, when he came to America, he only wanted to see the White House, and the only other thing he wanted to do was to go to Graceland. So yeah. I just sort of felt there's a cultural depth there. What I think is, though, is that it was enough, such a focus for us, to get the older audience to come in to the theater, and then we gained through Austin the younger audience, you know? Mm. So I think I, would, I just wasn't able to be everywhere and do the same sort of intensity, and not just me, but the whole team all the time. But having said that, it's absolutely um, a living, breathing creature that's kind of beyond me, you know, it has its own mm. life, you know. You know, Baz, I was looking at your filmography and one thing I really found interesting is after Strictly Ballroom, you shot everything 239 um, going forward in your career, essentially. Um, Strictly Ballroom was 185 um, yeah. and and that was, you know, 30 years ago today. And so mm. I, I, I wanted to ask you one lessons that maybe you learned from that film that you still apply now in a film like Elvis. And two, because you went to 239 right after that film and everything you did, Romeo and Juliet forward was 239. What was the decision there? Like, and was the 185 something that maybe you learned from or that you wanted to kind of do differently going forward? Wow, I thought you were going to say, I mean, look, I really wish you'd make a frigging 185, you know, ratio film, for God's sake. I miss <laughs> them. No, I love to. 239 is more cinematic, I think. You, yeah. you know what? You're right about that. Look, look, uh, Dominic Alpine, who did with me Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge. And he's done like, like Don's done like so many movies, you know, of course now I made other movies with Mandy, but Don was always a thing about what was anamorphic actually. We used to, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, you're looking at someone who shot on film, you know? Okay, okay. All no, right. no, I it's love real, that. They exist, all right? Um, <laughs> still, but you know, the thing about anamorphic, you, your words were right. It's your right words, cinematic, you know? Now, what's curious, though, is the shape. I mean, one, I think about the theatre. You know, I'm a man of the theatre. But I have no problem. I will admit I've actually watched things on an iPhone too late at night on a streamer gone, you know. <laughs> and that, they're, they're remarkable, actually. I, don't, I mean, an iPhone's reflectivity and the density of the screen and the colour, sometimes a lot better than a television. But back to your aspect ratio question, I think televisions now, I'm looking at one right in the corner here, they tend to be that shape, you know? Mm -hmm. And so 235, yes, it's cinematic. And it used to be, oh, my gosh, when they used to do modifications to back in the day, to your 235, for, I mean, back in those days, um, it was mind-blowing, like, for VHS and things. Oh. Like, they'd actually... Oh, the pan and scan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It'd be a two-shot like this, and they'd be talking, and they'd pan arbitrarily. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't understand I had power to say, I am not doing that. You know, it was very hard to fight because... In certain territories, they get a lot of money in the studios, you know. Pan and scan, man. Oh, unbelievable, you know. I mean, talk, talk about uh, so, so I think 235 is actually one, you're right, it's inherently cinematic. 
Two, it happens to fit on all our screens now. I mean, this screen I'm on here, that 235 is going to sit really nicely. And even if it's on an aeroplane, one of those old ones, it's still only sort of crop top and bottom. People are no longer doing that thing, you know. And also audiences. I mean, aspect ratio with audiences now. I mean, look, TikTok is up and down, you know. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So the way in which we actually receive the picture and the shape of the picture, I mean, back in the day, Gone on the Wind was like dead square. You know? Like a four by three, right? Essentially. Exactly like, yeah. right. Exactly right. You know, you think, how can a big movie be, like, be in that shape? But, you know. Right. Right. Hmm. But Strictly that Ballroom is, was interestingly 185, which I thought was really interesting. That's right. It was yeah. a choice. And look, 185, I'll tell you what Don used to say to me. He's like, 185 is a really good for drama and a kiss, right? It's really good for a kiss. Um, 235, amazing for epic. So in 235, where do you, if you're doing a kiss, where do you put the two heads? Do you do you lean it left? Do you lean it right? Do you know do you long it one side? Mm. That kind of thing. Am I making sense? Am I getting too geeky here? On no, that's... you're you're you fit in very well with <laughs> I, this podcast. I just asked me. you an aspect ratio question. We this is literally the podcast. This is, this is what we do. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah go, go and have a look at couples kissing and look at aspect ratio. I'm thinking about where do I, because, you know, in the end, there's got to be a profile of a kiss shot, right? Mm -hmm. you over, over, you can come around or whatever. But in the end, the, it's got to be the poster, right? So mm -hmm. where, there's the two heads. Like, where do they go in the aspect ratio, you know? Mm -hmm. In the middle, over here. I love that. Cool. Yep. I love um, it. Baz, a lot of people are rightfully so talking about Austin for an Oscar nomination and, and everyone here knows how long that Oscar campaign can be. I mean, we've, we're like six or seven months from the Oscars, but it's already starting to ramp up because of Venice and and yeah. the, the Toronto Film Festival. What advice do you have for him on, huh? on how to endure what can be a really long and exhausting yeah. few months yeah. of shaking hands and kissing babies? Right. You're absolutely right. Look, I back in the day around Moulin Rouge, I realized having done an election campaign actually mm -hmm. for the prime minister of Australia. Wow. Right. Oh, wow. And understanding what that was, I realized, you know, I used to think like, Oh, isn't it a, you know, isn't there a fit? Not really. And my philosophy about awards in general is the following winning one. Great. I, you know, I just signed off on, I belong in outside the box. So I'm good with that. Listen, my wife's got four, you know, breakfast time there and they come bang, bang, bang. <laughs> like, hey, check it out. You know, <laughs> she, she, she really doesn't care, but I mean, she does care. It's a great honor, but, but what awards do is it throws light on the movie. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. And so doing the campaign and getting out there and communicating the movie is almost more important than actually who wins in the end. I mean, of course, it's wonderful. You win the gong, fantastic, you know, very honoured. But what's really important is kind of the journey. And your point is a very good one. I was talking to Austin the other night and saying, look, this isn't about, like, you've got to participate. And you are right. Like, what, what you don't see on the outside, I mean, growing up in a small country town, I was, you know, the Oscars, oh, my God, the Oscars are on, you know, like, oh, would I ever, ever, ever see that one day? But... Growing up in a tiny country, I mean, but what we don't see on the outside is chicken dinner number 335 mm -hmm. at the something or rather that sure. triggers at something or rather, <laughs> you know? So yeah. when you said shaking hands, kissing babies, and, and essentially like in an election campaign, actually what you're really doing is re-communicating the film and you're really wanting mm -hmm. like to get attention on it, get audiences in and get you know, get the constituency to really consider it, you know? And, it, and, it, and you know what, like um, winning, that's one thing. But do I think that Austin Butler, who so many and understandably 
so many naysayers went, how can that guy play Elvis Presley, who gave two years of his life, day and night? I did not know Austin was from Anaheim until a significant amount of time after I met him. <laughs> like, he was already down Elvis Road, you know? And when yeah. the pandemic came, he doubled down on his karate. He doubled down on his voice. He doubled down on the work. Like, I just think he never, I don't think he slept much. Mm-hmm. He just lived as Elvis. Like, like I never met him that he didn't have a piece of Elvis in his ears or watching one more, looking for an obscure piece. Like the level of devotion and I've been around devoted artists of every kind was just off the charts. So at the very least, he should be acknowledged, you know, acknowledged. Baz, we don't get to talk about the end of the film often during a press junket. We want to protect as much as we can. Um, but now with the film coming to home video, I want to ask you about a very specific moment, which was uh, a full gut punch to me, which is when you uh, cut to the only moment of actual footage of Elvis. Yeah. Uh, and it is even through everything that we've been watching up to that point to see him, to see yeah. actually him mm-hmm. uh, and you're struck by his mm-hmm. age and how he looks. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it, it was heart wrenching. You know, it, it was like, yeah. I, I can't believe that this man with everything that happened to him and, and how he looks this way. I want to just talk to you about your creative choice to cut to the him in that moment mm-hmm. and, and what you had to do to almost set that up so that you so that the transition could happen. There's two parts to that. It's a great question because you're right. Um, I, I, you know, despite what people might think, I actually do lots and lots of labor on writing. Then I shoot. I'm even writing during a shooting. And then I'm writing in post. Like I'm still trying to perfect the construct of it because my films are layered, you know. And uh, at the end, the end, the end, you know. Like, you know. And it's interesting because the scene, it relates to another scene, the scene in the back of the limousine, with Priscilla, I always knew they should have this scene. In, and, and honestly, I probably wrote that two days before we did it. I was just laughing about it with Austin, saying, what about, you know, like when they have the breakup and he seems, you know, and because I was trying to find it. And I say that because I wasn't, I, I imagined at one point, maybe Elvis, the end of it was like Elvis at the, towards the end of his life. He had the Lisa Marie. He's just fly around. Mm-hmm. And the pilot say, where do we go? He said, just keep flying around. Don't mm-hmm. leave us like a sort of bird in a cage. I kind of wanted that image, you know, he was just going to, you know, because of that lovely speech about, you know, bird without wings doesn't land, right. you know, right. if he lands, but right. once to fly. Um, but then we had to do Unchained Melody. It was always like it must for a long time. We had to say, and then let's coder it with Unchained Melody. Now that reel you see where Elvis actually is at the end, you know, when you cut to him young, like the real Elvis cuts in and you see, I had a reel that I used to have like, six years ago when I'd say talk about the movie or show it to Tom Hanks or show it in the studio and John O'Redman, who was one of the editors of my editing team, you know, um, Matt Villa and John O'Redman, had cut that reel and it's exactly how it was and right and we went like, you've got to see Elvis. And I can't remember how it happened. We were in a sort of session. We we're like, well, do we like, like where? And your, your wonderful way of saying it, the gut punch idea, which was, do it at the moment. Musically, you were there and you're like, well, you know, there's only what's so extraordinary about that footage is that even people who are so not Elvis fans, and there were a lot of them back then, I would show that footage and as corrupted as the body was, the voice soars. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That moment yep. when he looks at the audience and smiles like a little boy, like, am I doing good? Huh? Right, yeah. right, right, right. That's real. And so what you understand is 
that the real issue with Elvis, and this is what the Colonel sort of argues is, like, and there are very few icons like this, is that in the end, the love between him and the audience and back, just nothing can compare. And I think you still see it in that footage. And everyone I showed that footage to who had not seen it were moved by it. They, they were sort of, you know, I'm talking about folk would be like, oh, Elvis, the, you know, the big guy in the white suit, bit of a joke, yeah. isn't he? See sure. that? And they're incredibly moved. So we felt we had to get it in and finding the moment. That's, that's what it was all about. It humanizes the myth, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And right. Because, like, honestly, he can barely stand up. He cannot get three words together. Yeah. You know, blah, 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 trying to make jokes that aren't working. But when he sings, yeah, and he's going to be dead in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. When he sings, he may sing the best he ever sang in his life. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, did he know? I don't know. But that's an extraordinary piece of footage. Oh, I'm you glad you included. And, and by the way, I want to tell you, there was a lot of amongst the controlling groups, and I understand this, oh, we don't like to put that footage out there. We really don't like to have that footage out there. You know? That makes sense. I understand that. They're yeah. protective. But, but you know it was what? the right choice. See it, you know what? When you see it, though, mm-hmm. yeah. the beauty of the soul cuts through the physical yeah. degradation. That's what I yeah. think. I think that was the choice, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. You know, Baz, something I brought up to you at, at the TV junket that I wanted to highlight here because our, our show is a filmmaking podcast. Because I, I think this is a really interesting thing. As, as I've rewatched the film, I've even thought about this even more, which is sweat and hair continuity. Um, and we talked about this at the junket. And you were talking about how it, this is an important part of your filmmaking process. But as I'm rewatching Elvis, the continuity is perfect in terms of every time we cut back to him, the hair and the, and the sweat and everything. Um, but I, I don't think people realize how hard that is to keep My right. Um, can you, can you tell our audience kind of like why that's important to you? And maybe what, what did you learn it on earlier films of yours? Because to me, that's one of the most interesting character aspects, his hair and the way he sweats is a character all in itself. You're, uh, you're a thousand percent right in terms of Elvis. Like he really thought about it. He thought about like he practiced the way he moved his hair in the fifties. He wore three kinds of different hair wax and practiced moving his hair as he moved, <laughs> right? Butch wax here and that, right? So he, so there's that the sweating thing, which the colonel hated. You know, like he that was part of his kind of have to get in the spirit. Like he didn't practice steps; he sort of did them. But let me tell you something. In the early days, my continuity was appalling. Like. I think there was a website dedicated to Baslam's horrendous continuity, right? Like in strictly <laughs> back in the day, in the world yeah. where it was like, and and in the early films, like certainly strictly Borum, I didn't really mind it because I was sort of aping old Hollywood movies, and so it was more important the kind of gestalt of the vibe as to whether it was exact. You know, there's a few cheats in there, and it was early filmmaking for me, and I was trying to discover the language. But on this, no way, no way, and the reason is this. I was copying real footage. So I was already handed a kind of chalice that said, you, you'll be compared to. I mean, you know it. You see on TikTok, they've got, they've got Elvis doing a Viking dream. They've got Austin, you know, thank yeah, sure. you. His devotion and our camera angles, it's a match. Now, I'll tell you how much energy we put into that. There was a lot of language on the set, you know, and, you know, I had an amazing hair and makeup team. And, you know, you cut and they get in there and get amongst it. Sometimes even I would freak with Austin's hair because hair is a big deal for me. Yeah, it's a huge part of the movie. So much so, this will nail it for you, that Austin goes and gets hats made for everybody. 
And I used to say, like, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it we've got, you know, like the coming explosion, there's gonna be a car. And I was like, okay, ready? And I was like, how are we? And I used to yell out, the hair has spoken. <laughs> that meant we're ready to shoot. And I got that's name for everybody and said, TCB at the front of the back, if there's a picture of his hair on the back of the cab, it said, the hair has spoken. <laughs> so essentially, everybody was waiting for the hair to speak. <laughs> that's, that's incredible that's fantastic olivia, olivia told me during the thing she was complimenting um just the detail of the extras in the christmas special of how much you paid attention to the yeah. way they sat where their hands were you know how like yeah. that's the level of detail you were putting into these scenes you know a funny thing a funny thing about that um by the way polly bennett got a shout out to her she's part of our team she does actor movement unbelievable she gift. worked on uh, uh rami malik right with remy but, yeah but and she did austin movement but also she worked with us and all the extras and all that but we all absolutely detailed nuts but i'll tell you something great i i just released uh, i think on tiktok or something a tiny snippet from the comeback of of us doing trying to get back to you, which is not in the movie. I just had to compress and make choices. But someone said, oh my God, I can't believe they've got that weird, geeky, like, you know, 12 year old kid with the round glasses in there even, you know, which we do, right? And he only appears like in one shot in the comeback, but there's some, must've been the, the son of, this sort of round faced kids who sit right near the amplifier of a producer or something said, you sneak in the producer. So yes, the answer is absolutely. Cause we call it train spotting, meaning is this a train spotting shot? Mm -hmm. And that means to like getting it right on the, uh, on the Milton Berle show, like Austin, I like just getting it so that it truly matched just like, you know, focal lengths, um, quality and density of black, and white and then then austin and the movement you know i mean that set you see colorized pictures of the set but we did the research and the set in that milton bowl is the real color of the set you know so it meant a lot we it was we we could not let the fans down and then go like oh near enough is good enough because near enough when it comes to train spotting is not good enough right you know uh, Baz, uh, we've been told we have time for one more, so I'm going to cut you loose on this. Um, there has been a lot of talk about a, a longer cut of this film out there. Tom Hanks told us that there's a ton that 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 didn't make it into the final film. Um, I had heard that we're about to get like a series episodic version of Australia. So I'm curious, does that mean that like one day there will be a, a usage of this extra Elvis footage? Like, would it be a longer form of the movie? Would it be an episodic version mm. of the story? Like, are you going to do anything with that footage? Jake, it's a really good question because what's going on with Australia is it's it's not just like Australia plus a few extra scenes. It's literally a different creature. It's called Faraway Downs. I've done some really great new music with it, with an indigenous, young indigenous performers. Um, it to me, it's like variations. It's like Debussy does variations on Sati. You know, it's the same piece, same subject, same materials, but it's different. Um, when they say there's a four hour version, that doesn't mean that there's four hours of finished visual effects mix and everything sitting on a shelf. And I just have to kind not of yet. rip it out of the punnet. Is that <laughs> not yet? <laughs> Having said that, and I, I have to treat carefully because honestly, I'm still just, you know, I'm here, I'm here hanging out with you guys, still talking about the film, and it's you know, it's still in theaters and <laughs> you know, and my BRD. But what I will say is this: not now, not um, you know, not even maybe next year, but I know 
And it's not four hours because that's an assembly, you know. But mm. is there a more evolved variation on this version of the film in the very far future? Yes, I think we live in a world now, and that's why I went for it with the with the faraway downs. I think we live in a world now where a theatrical experience can exist. Mm. You know, we live in a world where, like, like look at music, you know, like uh, you know, look at TikTok, like you know. Oh, something comes out, someone mashes it with something else. They do an overlay. You know, it's almost like chaos theory. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that you're foolish not to open your heart to the possibility of taking one set of material, playing it one way for one portal, and then looking at a variation on that material for another way of telling the story. So sure. I only care about storytelling. I am not, I do care about people bringing people into the theater. I passionately believe that human beings want to sit with other strangers in a dark room and commune over a story, no matter what's going on on your television, you know, mm. or your iPhone, you know, but I'm also open to what can we do on an iPhone? You know, is that, a, did, you, did you cut me loose in the right way? Or did I go too no, far? That was, that was perfect. That's, listen, Baz, as you can tell, we would love to have you on all day. And yeah. We, we have enormous, so many questions. Yeah. We're yeah. Enormous fans of you as a, as a storyteller. And uh, we just thank you so much for taking the time to come on real blend. Well, I, I think one day you'll regret saying you'd have me on all day. I think even all, <laughs> even all of you would tire of it. I know that. But listen, I, yeah. I, 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 I actually, it's, it's encouraging and it's uplifting that young guys like you really care about movies. The passion, that's really, that's really great. You know, so I can retire now. Good luck with it. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Naturally, we want to thank Baz Lerman for coming by the show. He is welcome back anytime. Uh, terrific guest. And make sure you guys go see Elvis. Uh, I'm starting to see a couple of Oscar charts. 
and I'm seeing Austin Butler's name on there as high as like two or three in the oh, best wow. actor mm. category. Um, so that push could be really real. Uh, oh, it is. I said out of Toronto that no one's going to beat Brendan Fraser, but I would love to see Austin Butler in that in the race. Right. I mean, like there's a lot of stuff that has to happen between now and then. But but he seems like a really strong candidate. Baz's so. comment about the nomination almost being more important than the win. Okay. I thought was really interesting. Mm. Um, just about like bringing attention and bringing eyeballs to, to, you know, just to the film, which, you know, which is, which is true. It's how it works. Well, and I think if, if people stop to check that movie out and they realize that like, he's legitimately no pun intended, giving his sweat and tears yeah. to that performance. Like he leaves it all on the line to play Elvis yeah. at various stages of his life. Which I think what's what, what's his Oscar clip? Oh God, I don't know. Is it? Is it? Um, I mean, one like there's a part of me that says like it should be him singing, but I also love the um, the you don't have a passport, you son of a bitch, like screaming at at Tom Hanks. Oh, uh, behind the scenes, okay. I like the um, the scene where he goes out on the like the baseball field. Yes. And, he, and he defies the oh yeah, yeah. the kick. The, he yeah, does the yeah. dance. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, because 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 he's actually also giving. He's also saying dialogue in that scene too before he starts the song and like mm-hmm. yeah and like and the beauty beauty of that scene is that the way they're eyeing um he's eyeing the people around yeah. him or people looking at him to say don't mess up that scene's great and then I think they also in that scene before you move on I love that scene because I think that's the first time I've only still only seen the film the one time where they uh first cut to like still images uh, like mm-hmm. actual still images of him on the stage i think that was the first time they did that and it mm. matches beautifully could that yeah. be a new premium game uh like saying uh, you know this actor won for this role what was their oscar clip Ooh. oh like literally what was their oscar clip yeah i like that we, we could remember that's that kind of fun. you know then they use a terrible one for Rami Malek. Then they use like a um, any you mean any clip from the movie? Shows all. Any clip? <laughs> First of all, I, I love Bohemian Rhapsody. You guys are you guys have so much <laughs> random hate for that film. I don't understand that. Remember, Jake, um, you used to, Ethan, you, I think maybe you liked I, that. No, film. I, I I I wouldn't ever go as far as saying I liked it. It's the more and more I read about it, and I, I think it also just like it, it's one of those movies. Do you ever like? walk out of a movie and you're like okay yeah it's fine but then like it kind of just blows up and has so much success where you're like okay screw this movie because it oh, had success all the time more more deserving success than it deserved to have oh I and, and i think that has my chip on the shoulder about and also in regards to like i also feel like that role and rami winning is a big part of the reason that uh taron edgerton didn't get the, the the love and and accolades and respect that he deserved for rocket man which to me that performance in that film was 10 times anything that that bohemian rhapsody put out anyway we've discussed this in the past but do you remember um sean we talked with ethan hawk about um his oscar clip for training day yes we did and, and remember he and his i think his quote was like i, I didn't win but it, like if the award went to who had the best oscar clip that night it would have been me yes i agree with that 100 percent. um i want to look up who rami malik defeated uh in that category also, uh, another uh, good scene for the Oscars for uh, Austin could be the scene in the Ferris wheel with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one, too. Great scene. Yeah. Like, basically, if you look at that scene, like a like a metaphorically, like a spider almost like he catches him in his spider web and and he's like not letting him go. And they're, you know, that 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 scene kind of and even the Ferris wheel kind of looks like a spider web a little bit as well. So. All right. Well, while I'm doing this, I want you guys to sort of vamp about uh, the latest footage from a friend of the show, Mike Flanagan. Uh, Mike Flanagan has a new film coming, a new series coming to Netflix, um, but I don't think he directed it. I think he's just executive producing it. 
Yeah, so, so it's a little it kind of reminds me of a little bit like not not in terms of like the tone of the, but like remember when the second season of haunting came out bly manor yeah and he was involved but it wasn't quite a full-blown flanagan production like midnight mass or the first season I, of I, hill house i believe what he said after hill house was especially like you know episode six and such i believe he was quoted roughly of saying like that was a lot to do that and he's much happier to like be a part of something and then have all these other great directors come in sure. and lend their voice to that. the project yeah. versus yeah. trying but, to see everything from beginning it, to end. But was did that he do all of okay. Midnight Mass? I think Midnight I Mass think, was definitely, was, I don't know if he did, but it was his baby. It was more his baby, I would say. Let me double check. That, that's what I'm saying. Look. Like sometimes a project feels like it's his baby. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there's a project that feels like he's involved with but in collaboration with other people. And the, and the second season of Haunting felt like a collaboration, and, and this this one does as well. He directed all seven episodes in Midnight Mass. Yeah, Midnight yeah. Mass felt like his baby. Well, yeah, because that was just such a... Well, and and honestly, like, things are just better when they're entirely his. Like, not that I'm not... I mean, obviously, sure. obviously this, this new show, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think the trailer is fantastic. But the fact that it's not, like, 100% Flanagan, it's like Flanagan mm-hmm. with others... I'm hedging my excitement, I guess, a little well, bit, I would say. And this is I find it interesting that he's doing another title with the word midnight in it in general. But um, this is based on a Christopher Pike novel. Right. And so mm-hmm. the the trailer really intrigued me. I mean, like it looks fascinating. I like the idea of him dealing with a younger cast. I just saw him tweeting about how fascinating it was to work with a younger cast. Like one thing I liked about uh, Haunting of Hill House, I mean, aside from like, you know, Who's the actor who played uh, 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 Elliot Nietzsche? Um, Henry Thomas. Henry, Henry Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. Aside from him in Hill House, I don't remember anyone super famous being part of that. Um, and I just, you know, and I, well, I kind of. Carlo. Yeah, Gina, but I mean, I'm, but Gina, there was no yeah. like super A list yeah. actor. Um, yeah. So when I watched this trailer, and I love Carlo Gugino, I'm, I'm just saying that in terms of like recognition i liked seeing a new cast like i I didn't really recognize a lot of the cast members Mm -hmm. unless you guys did i did not um but i found it interesting and refreshing that i wasn't going oh there's that actor there's this actor i was just like immersed in the world the the trailer does a great job of setting up the idea of the story and also i just love like it kind of reminds me again this is a, a big jump but the concept of Are You Afraid of the Dark was always a, a big thing for me. We're like kids Love just sit, that show. Kids just sitting around just telling stories. And I, and I know this is going to be a lot darker and a lot more, I'm assuming, R-rated. But just like the moment where they're around the table talking about things. I just love those types of films I lo- or, or shows or, or ideas. And so I'm already intrigued by that in general. And then the concept of the lead character being sick and obviously going to this place and figuring yeah. out kind of what's going on there. Um, I don't, I don't think there was one jump scare in the trailer that I thought was a little too obvious, which was the girl that was At down the, end the, of the street. Hall. Yes. Yeah. And then she like jumps in into the frame. Yep, I'm like, yep, yep. I, I mean, know. it's kind of like that ring grudge error type of edit where like, dude, you know, the, in that moment, I was like, please do, do something original. Yeah. I know. Please I, dude, do something original. I thought the same thing. I, I think it was like outside. Maybe it was in like a cul-de-sac or a street. And yep. like, you see this girl all the way down at the end and then. And then literally I did the same thing, Sean. I was like, I was like, I was like, Mike, don't have her jump into the frame. Yeah. Just, you don't need to and do she it. Did. But, but, she but did. I also get the game. The game we're playing here is you're trying to hook people to watch sure. it. Not everybody sure. watches trailers the same way we do. And, yeah. um, but yeah, I'm all in. I mean, Flanagan, I was telling you guys on thread 
today. We, uh, if, if people are hearing this and you have not gone back and listened, we had two amazing interviews with Flanagan. One of them was for Dr. Sleep, which was like a two hour interview that we did. We were all just like dying laughing weirdly for a film that is so incredibly dark. Um, uh, and then we had him for Midnight Mass. Yeah. And he was unbelievable. Um, he's been a great guest on this show. Um, and he's just a talented director. And we're not just saying that cause he's been on the show. He's just a really talented filmmaker that happens oh. to do our show sometimes. Um, and I'm just, I love supporting him. I love his passion. And I also think it's cool that he's kind of fell into this Netflix area. Yeah. Like he kind of, he kind of has an interesting career path. Cause if you think about haunting of Hill house, which was kind of like his big, huge breakout, I would, I would argue and then, you know, got Dr. Sleep. And that was obviously a big success in terms of like people loving it and, and you know, people loving The Shining. But he's really kind of found a great niche for himself at Netflix. And I think uh, they're really kind of giving him the opportunity to make them shows and things that he wants to do. And you can tell that it's not it's not compromised. It's it's his vision. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. So I'm, I'm, I'm bummed that uh, the third Shining film, his Dick Halloran film, isn't going to happen. Oh, for real? Is that, Was that yeah, they, did, they did King just, write just, a book for that? No, uh, they he didn't write a book. There, King only wrote two Shining books, um, but apparently he had planned on doing a second film for him, a third film for the trilogy about Dick Halloran. And uh, they apparently the story just came out this week that they cited the financial disappointment of Dr. Sleep as oh. the reason not to move forward. And apparently Flanagan <laughs> came out and said they were like that close to it happening. And it's such a bummer because. Like Dr. Sleep, obviously, I know we know it didn't do massive box office numbers, but everybody you talk to about that film either says one, that they were surprised that it was on the level of The Shining or two. Some people say they even liked it more than The Shining. And I'm like, I I, I wouldn't go that far. But that film, you know, anybody who could handle the Nicholson switch out that he did with Henry Thomas from the side like he did. That's just masterclass. Oh, oh, last thing I want to mention is this Possum Kingdom. The song in the trailer for Midnight sure. Club. Classic. Good choice. So. Not to rehash Dr. Sleep, but you mentioning the fact. Would that movie have crushed if they just like called it The Shining 2, Dr. Sleep? For honestly, probably. Like, the yeah, Dr. Sleep, Dr. Sleep sounds like a Marvel movie. It honestly does. And and when when I saw that movie slated originally, so I'm, I'm Jake and Sean are big Stephen King fans. I, I, I don't read his books regularly like like those guys do, but. I didn't know Dr. Sleep existed. Like I, I knew The Shining and I knew the story behind Kubrick and what he did and changed all the things. I don't think I knew he wrote a sequel. And so when that slate came out, I'm like, wait a second. Is this like a is this like a DC version of Dr. Strange? Yeah. That's be, like, I, yeah. I was thinking that I was like, I'd be curious is, if they ever yeah. discuss like calling it like Dr. Sleep. The Shining, Shining story. Yeah. Or something like that. The Shining saga or some something like that to try because Well, they also well, but they, they cut its legs out from underneath it by not putting out the full director's cut. It's a, yes. it's a Batman Superman. Yeah. And they know? were playing they were playing the game to its to its benefit to when you're experiencing the film before it came out. We didn't know how much. Of The Shining was going to be in Dr. Sleep. Mm. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, true. Let me, let me ask you guys this. You yeah, did. Yeah. yeah, I did. I'll ask you this. And th- this is going to be this is the question that. We might have to like think for a second because, okay, in our world, for us, The Shining is a massive film. Do you think general audiences are as obsessed with that movie as we are that would Not go as to obsessed. a sequel to see a sequel to The Shining? Not as like, obsessed, but The Shining is ubiquitous, is what I would oh, say. I get it. It's, it's That's transcended my point, its though. pop culture, but like, I, do you think it's big enough to have drawn people had they called it The Shining 2? Yes. But also like keep I, in mind, they put it out in November. I think yeah. you call it a Shining sequel, you put it out in October. I think no matter mm. what, 
people just flock to horror films, particularly in the fall, sure. particularly in, in, our, in, in our, the month of October. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's a horror movie coming out, people are in just that mood. They're ready to go. They're getting their pumpkin spice latte and they are, they are ready to wear their flannel. They are ready to do it. And I think if they put it out the month before, and yes, I agree with you, call it The Shining colon Dr. Sleep, then I think you've got uh, a $30 million opening as opposed to $30 million box office total. But I've got to really quickly, I just sent you guys something. Uh, the great Mike Reyes of Cinema Blend hmm. just made a really great point that uh, I'm going to sum up, which is basically um, Mike Flanagan has a great relationship with Netflix, obviously. And the, the new head of Warner Brothers Discovery has said that they are open for business, quote, in terms of licensing their product out. Why doesn't Netflix step in, take the license for, of the Shining films from Warner Brothers, let Flanagan continue the story he wants to make? Oh, I, can't, I can't take credit for that. That is the great Mike Reyes who brought that up, which is a, so great, you, it's a great point. So you put Shining and Doctor Sleep on Netflix mm -hmm. and then you let him continue let him uh, do his forward. Oh, yeah. I, I would say, though, after making Doctor Sleep, would you want to go again? I mean, that movie is so... I mean, I, I, he already did well, such a great job. In the, people oh, I'm in sure the, he's great. The idea but for the prequel, yeah. I will say this. The one thing I, I find interesting about Dr. Sleep, and like, like and we were talking about this earlier, it's like, in terms of the money it made at the box office, Jake, do you think the running time has something to do with it, too? Because most horror films, like, hour 30, hour 40, wasn't this, like, 2.30? Yeah. It, it, was, it was a long film, but, but we've also... 90. Yeah. Not in a bad way. I'm just wondering sure. if that, you think that affected... Like, sure. someone, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, someone's on Fandango and, like, yeah. they go, but, You know, oh. I still feel like, you know, and I'll, I'll cut it loose on this. I had a guy come up to me at work the other day, say, oh, you were talking about Dr. Sleep. Like, is that movie actually good? And I was like, <laughs> we've, dude, we've worked together for, like, the last five years. How have you not heard me talk about how good that movie is? So I still feel like I'm convincing people yeah. to watch this movie. That, like, that just their perception of a Shining sequel is that it would just be bad. Yeah. Sean, uh, Real quick, you didn't give your Midnight Club thoughts, and then we have to oh, move on. I, I, it, it reminds me a little bit of, and only because I'm, I'm in the middle of reading it, that uh, Stephen King book, The Institute, uh, because it's, again, a young cast. Uh, they're in one single location. Uh, they're there to, um, in this case, uh, of The Midnight Club, treat uh, what looks to be uh, cancer and other infections that the, these kids are facing. I got a vibe when they were talking about uh, figuring out how to get over their ailments and potentially live forever. Like, does this have a vampire twist to it? I, something. Uh, yeah. That hit me. He can't that, do that again, though, can he? Sure. Or, or I mean, who else lives forever? What other what other types of characters live forever besides I, vampires? I don't know. I think I it's vampires. Oh, and, and it's also important to mention, like, you know, that trailer is out now, obviously. But I was wondering, do you think the Midnight Club will ever attend a midnight mass in the show? Oh, <laughs> interesting. Need well done. Someone get that. I wasn't even making a joke. I'm like, oh, you should go to Midnight were. Mass. No, they probably might. not. But it looks yeah. good. We're all in and we love Flanagan. And uh, come on, come on back on the show, Mike. We'd love to have you here. So Mikey, I was surprised to uh, learn that the Golden Globes were returning to television. As was I. Um, because first I've heard you guys say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean, I haven't heard you say that before. It's the uh, <laughs> it's I, I kind of thought we were just going to be done with the, the Golden Globes um, and that they could, you know, potentially exist as one of these other award shows that announced their uh, their winners via press release. But that we didn't have the need for a televised celebration um, because the market is a bit oversaturated. And here's here's the point where we will point out that all three of us are members of the Critics' Choice Awards and we hold a ceremony 
that, um, you know, was uh, contending to be the replacement for the Golden Globes and and wants to be the bellwether for the Oscars. Um, but the return of the Golden Globes to NBC uh, seems to suggest two different things. One, that they feel that they have addressed the lack of diversity in their membership, which was uh, the the boldest strike against them in terms of losing the support of NBC. Uh, so I would like to hear some different ways as to how they addressed those concerns, because I don't really know much about their membership in the in the push ever since then. Um, and just it, it it's a vote of confidence for a format that I thought was kind of dying, which is these televised awards programs, because all you see are the ratings going down for these telecasts time and time again. And the Oscars trying to figure out ways to to stay relevant. Um, and, you know, how many more of these do we necessarily need? So um, NBC bringing them back. While I guess it's, you know, a ratings play for them, uh, I just didn't think we were going to go down this road again. Yes, Gabriel. Uh, you mentioned like what they've done to address their um, membership. This is according to Deadline, who's discussing a story. It says that the organization has added 103 new voters to its ranks mm. um, and that the total Golden Globe Awards voting body is now 52% female 51.5% racially and ethnically diverse with 19.5% uh, Latinx, 12% Asian, 10% black and 10% Middle Eastern. According to them, they, they had what? 87 voters, um, I believe. And it was like, there was, yeah, I mean, it was super exclusive. And yeah, that, that information, again, that's a, that is a big change. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it, it is, uh, well, I'll clarify. It's a change that is moving forward. For sure. Well, in uh, February of 2021, they also cite this to what you're getting at. In February 2021, um, it was revealed that they had zero black members. Right. And that's that that's to, to your point of the numbers you just said, like they clearly have made There's a shift. But you know, so the let me ask this is, question. was it enough? Yeah. My bigger question is, why do we need the Globes? Like, can you guys can either of you answer why we need the Globes? Well, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I mean, well, first I, I of all, that's, oh. Go ahead, go ahead, Jake, go ahead. I said, I've always felt like they were the more fun show to watch, mm, if I'm are. being honest with you. And it's also, I know people who will watch the Globes and not the Oscars because the Globes are just a little tighter. They're not as associated with being as long and drawn out as the Oscars tend mm. to be. Um, and they're and not self-serious. Yes, and it seems, yeah, exactly. It just seems like a little bit more of a party than, you know, the, the Oscars... Is, is at this point, I think, a show for almost exclusively for movie fans. Mm -hmm. And I find more people in my newsroom that I talk to who are casual movie fans are more inclined to turn on the Globes because there is much more of this X factor of I just got to see what happens. I don't know. You know, they're drinking and, you know, the years of Ricky Gervais hosting. You wanted to hear what he was going to say. And there was just sort of like, well, I just got to I just got to see what the hell is going to happen. And that I don't think that the Oscars carry with it. Well, that same vibe. I think after last year, they they kind of yeah, do but you now. Can't, you can't replicate. I mean, that, that one. That's I think oh. I don't think I don't think that's something they want to replicate. But that's oh, also no. like I mean, that's such a 
That, that's not that's not the sort of moment I'm talking about. I'm talking about like like the, you know the the fun you know they always had like fun uh, you know presenters and you know like the fun little bits with Jim Carrey running to the back because he's in television now. You know there's just like just little moments that um that the Oscars haven't been able to to to, to grapple. They've been able to wrap their their brain around why the Globes always felt like such a party and theirs felt like more of a formal black tie ceremony. That's what I mean. Again, I don't know where people stand on this. I actually thought Ellen did a great job hosting the Oscars when she yeah. was like incorporating the audience. And like, didn't she order pizzas to the audience? And they yeah. took she that might have been the last good host. Yeah. Remember when she like host. casually yeah. dropped um, Scorsese a script and was like, oh, how'd that get there? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, and then the, be- the best Scorsese joke ever, which we've said on the show a million times, was Jon Stewart. And he, like, I'll never forget, he was hosting the Oscars and Three Six Mafia won for Hustle and Flow, which is a phenomenal film by Craig Brewer, if you haven't seen it. And we had Craig Brewer on the show for Coming to America, too. Um, but he, he comes back from the from the award after Three Six Mafia win and he goes, Three Six Mafia, one Oscar. Martin Scorsese, zero. And like, because he hadn't, like, he literally hadn't won anything yet. It was, it was just, it was such a funny bit. It was so yeah. great. All right, so I guess we're tuning in. I mean, I listen, this is a show that will tune in to the Golden Globes. Yeah. And and I'll give them I will give them the credit for the fact that it seems that that show works a little bit better because they are doing better at hosts. And I'll level criticism at our own show and that the Critics Choice has not been able to land on the perfect host uh, up to this point. And the Oscars is struggling to find a good host. But between the combination of either uh, Ricky Gervais or when they do Tina and Amy, who I think work really well together oh, yeah. uh, as hosts for that show, um, that sets the tone. It sets for the the lighter, sarcastic. We're going to take the piss out of uh, the industry. And it, it, it works to that extent. I will say this. And again, I know that Ricky Gervais is controversial and people have opinions on that. When I hear that he's hosting, I will tune in just to yeah. see what he's going to say. I mean, sure. like I, I, I just can't because the fact that he's like saying things to people who are in the room again I'm not condoning what he says, but there is something about that a type of television where you go, I have no idea what this guy's going to say because he hey. actually probably doesn't care. Um, and I want to see what he's going to say. That that would make me tune in. That did. And Tina and Amy, same exact thing. Like there's like a Jake, to Jake's point and Jake's not Jake's not wrong. I think the argument that I was making about last year was with, with everything that happened at the Oscars last year, you know, it, that brought the show in a very different off the rails type of show that it had ever had been before, um, which is interesting because the way Jake was saying about the Golden Globes, which was like, you don't know what's going to happen. That was just it just happened to fall into the Oscars hands this year. Um, but Jake's right. I mean, the, the Globes are there's a there's an edge to them that you don't find with the Oscars. And at the end of the day, I don't think any of us take the Globes seriously, because generally speaking, when you nominate the tourist um, you're you're trying to get celebrities to show up at your show <laughs> again. That's part of that's that goes back to the controversy of of them in general. Kind of like what that show was and how right. they were treating. But that was Do you think there are any members body. of the HFPA that like are dying on that hill? They're like, screw you guys. I love the tourist. I wanted. <laughs> I, I did want to point out before we move on because Sean, you kind of asked the central question of like, do we need the Golden Globes? But I I think that this is not. I don't think this is necessarily the Golden Globes are back. This is the Golden Globes have another shot. Isn't it a one year contract? It's a a one year contract. We don't know if the reforms they've made is enough for the people who, uh, if people are going to show up, the celebrities they want are going to show up. Mm. Um, So that's going to be, that's going to be something. And we don't know what the audience is going to be. I think because this is one year, they're trying to NBC is going to say, okay, you've made these moves. That's enough for us to sign this, but we need to see 
not only how the talent reacts, but how the audiences react. And that will dictate yeah. if the Golden Globes have any <clears throat> place on primetime. Yeah. Remember, I, people I, who won people who won the Globe last year when they did it or whatever I was online, people didn't even announce that they won it. But yeah. I, I say, OK, I disagree because I think there were some people that did. And I, I would go as far as saying I think there were probably a lot of people who probably really wanted to, but didn't know mm-hmm. how people I think you, by, by the time the Globes come around in four months from now, yeah. uh, there will be, have been some distance from the controversy. I mean, look, let's be honest. If, if you're in that Oscar race, you want to do as much as you can and win as much as you can leading sure. up to it. So I think if you, the people that get nominated and they're in that Oscar race, they're going to show up to the Globes. I, I, I think they will be there. And the Globes matter when it comes to the the forward motion of your campaign yes like and, and there's like, no crossover and I, in the voting right body. we don't generally like like when it comes to the globes that i don't i don't generally take them as seriously as i do with the oscars like when i you think of an oscar there's a prestige to it but there is something to be said about what the globe gives you and on a momentum perspective like it, yeah. th- that is a very people big start show. talking about you because yes. remember leading up to the globes a few years back uh, we all thought that Gaga was going to be the best actress for Stars yep. Born. And then all of a sudden, Glenn Close wins and Glenn Close went all the way to Oscar night and then didn't win. But that but that was but that like shifted yeah. the whole power dynamic right. of the award season when Glenn yeah. Close won best actress. It also shifts the way the Oscar voters <laughs> vote, because if the Oscar voters see that this person wins. I mean, remember, anytime someone's winning an award leading up to the Oscars, there's I'm not saying people are biased, but it's in your mind. Like go Glenn Close won, Gaga won, this person won. And like I could see somebody theoretically going, oh, Close had all these awards. Let's give it to Coleman for the Oscar. Like hey. I, that, that's that's how ridiculous these things get. I would imagine. I have a suggestion. Yeah. Chris Rock hosts the Golden Globes. Oh, my God. That is the greatest idea I've ever. Heard my God, my if life. they could pull that off, because he he already said that it, he was offered to host the Oscars, which is a brilliant move on their part to try to get him yeah. to do it. And then he, and he said, no, he, he said he, he equated it to returning to the scene of a crime. Have I Chris would Rock pay like a paper pay-per-view price to watch yep. Chris Rock host the Globes. The Globes have one shot for a one year contract to put wow. up a good rating. Right. And, and let him say whatever, whatever. he wants. Oh, just, my Throw Last. a bag at him, and, and this is say. such a great idea. By the way, you're blowing my mind. It would Last be such thing. a great idea. Last thing on this oh. news story, though, what do you guys think about the fact that it's going to be on a Tuesday and not a Sunday? Oh, it is. I didn't even know. I that. didn't notice that. Yeah, oh, that's weird. That's, be on a that's Tuesday. That weird. seems yeah, that's weird. Like I Wait, said, this is oh, NBC oh, I know is why. placing football. NBC is, football? is placing a it's football super, but, but they always have. Well, well, by by the twelfth, are we still in regular season? No, we're in postseason by then. We're in postseason by then. But in, I mean, obviously, NBC is a major factor with the NFL. Right. You can't. Well, yeah, even I if, mean, even yeah. if you, football's not on your channel, it's a major factor. Yeah. yeah you don't want to go up thing. against that. If you're starting it on a if it's a Tuesday, you, that shit better start at seven Eastern. You yeah. know, like, don't be giving me. Yeah. Late night on a week on a weekday. Well, it's this is the I, same. I just picture you like on your like old Grand Torino porch and you're and you're with your with spitting into your Christ. mason jar saying, "Oh, you better yeah, start I mean, the Golden Globes at six o'clock." Yeah, it's this is January. January the, it's January tenth, so Tuesday rather than the truth. At what time? It doesn't say. This is the age old uh, argument about the Super Bowl. Yeah, which should be on a Saturday. But yeah, yes. but it True. probably won't start until what? At least five Pacific. They're in. Bever- they're in. That's uh, true. It'll sure. be eight to 11. It'll be eight. That's gonna but be like, okay. I still don't. I mean, I get that Sunday is the the football Mecca day. But I mean, like, 
and I have had this discussion with so many people over the years, like the fact that that's not on a Saturday is mind blowing. To yeah. Me. <laughs> so, like that should be a Saturday night. Yeah. Everyone's Honestly, every Super Bowl party I go to, there's always that. Well, particularly for us, because we have to get up so early for our jobs. There's always that hang up of like, uh, just like one or two beers. And that's that's it. That's all. Yeah, I can, yeah. that's all I can do. They start that game early, though. Luckily, like at 630 or something, which is which is thankfully yeah. they do that. But still, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I think the Globes or the Oscars, this all like the Globes, particularly. That's a great Saturday night show. Yeah, could be. that's a great like kickback Saturday night. I, I don't know. All right. Well, um, we'll see. We're still going to get into uh, reactions to Andor and the new movies opening this week, but let's take a quick moment to throw it to an ad break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back. Okay, so Andor is coming to Disney+. Plus. It's the latest uh, Star Wars long-form series. Uh, the first one that we have received since Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of fizzled a little bit and i have much the same way that you two are uh tuning out on the marvel shows in general i have you know sort of checked out on star wars and i will i'll watch them but i'm not going into them with any kind of anticipation of like oh this is going to be terrific so it blows me away to report that i having watched the first three episodes vandor uh find this to be potentially uh, the the best thing that Star Wars has released since the um the since Disney picked up Lucasfilm. Damn. Um. Yeah. I was like really counting movies. Like counting Force movies. Awakens. Damn. Yeah. I would say the only thing that comes close to to beating it is the Force Awakens. Um. Because of how fun that is. And again, this is only after three episodes. This show could completely shit the bed between now and the end. But um. I really enjoy Optimism, the fact, folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Obi-Wan really and sort of or tanks. it could be good or and or it could do <laughs> and um, or for this reason. So I really like Diego Luna in the character. Uh, I liked him in Rogue One. I think it has a, a lot of the elements that made Rogue, Rogue One really interesting. And Rogue One um, showed us a, a side of the rebellion that you hadn't seen all that often before the really sort of gritty underground push by people who were tired of having the empire's thumb, pushing them down sort of thing. It starts with the, uh, how these seeds of rebellion uh, are coming about and, and why the people are being persecuted by the empire. It does a really great job of showing the dichotomy of the haves and have nots and the people in the empire being, uh, fat and happy kind of thing and, and mm -hmm. almost primed to be taken down by uh, a, a really disgruntled community. Uh, it shows us new areas of the galaxy, which I've been clamoring for, you know, new worlds, new, new places to explore. Um, and the director, his name is Toby Haynes, um, I think is one of the first true Star Wars fanatics uh, to step into the director's chair. Maybe Abrams um, and, you know, Ryan's interpretation of Star Wars is 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 uh, up for debate. But I and I think that he's a fan in, in his own way. I think he's a fan of Star Wars for different reasons. 
But this guy, Toby Haynes, uh, directed the first three episodes and has created a, a very tangible uh, and very lived in uh, interpretation of the universe, whether you are in the bright and shiny, glossy uh, spaceships and headquarters and the, the Imperial Senate and all the different places that come with the wealth of Star Wars. Um, and he's just as convincing when he drops you to the ground level where you're following Diego around um, and he's trying to put together these small missions so that he can raise some money to get off. It it, it has an element of that that you saw in Solo where like Han was hustling in order to mm. trade different things in order to like get that. to certain places. Um, yeah. And then through the course of that story, he gets picked up and recognized by people who know that like, oh, you have a lot of potential for the rebellion and we're going to sort of put you to work. And you know that it's leading towards Rogue One. So it's not like Star Wars is branched completely away from, uh, hey, we're still telling you stories that are loosely connected to the Skywalker, Skywalker saga. We can't actually break fully away. But it's the first Star Wars thing um, in a really, really long time where I watched the first two episodes and I I kept watching because I was legitimately intrigued and not oh, I'm doing the junket and I just got to finish the next episode. Interesting. To get through where mm. we are. So I loved it. I loved it. And Kev, I know you got to see the first episode. Um, yeah. Am I overselling it? No, I mean, I like what I've seen so far. And so, you know, one thing that's really interesting is like, you know, we talk a lot about fatigue and like how much they're stretching out certain stories. So remember, like, you know, first of all, you have the, the original trilogy and then the saga continuing through episode seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, et cetera. Um, Rogue One was already a spinoff, right? Yeah. And then now we're going backwards <laughs> again. Yeah. Uh, so it's like it's like we're one or we're, we're we were already one off from the original films with Rogue One. Then we're one off again from that. So yes. we're pretty deep into like spinoff territory here. Um, and I think you know we all know they they all die at the end of Rogue One. I mean that 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 is the thing that we've seen. And, and Rogue One still has probably the greatest one of the greatest Star Wars scenes of all time, which is the Vader moment. But but in terms of knowing where that story is going, what I liked about this series so far in the first episode is while I know that Diego Luna's character dies at the end of Rogue One, I'm still interested in how they got to the point of what they did at the beginning of Rogue One. So mm -hmm. I'm actually fascinated by that because he is an interesting character and Diego is a phenomenal actor. Um, and like, you know, he comes from a an incredible body of work with Alfonso Cuaron and like he's worked with so many phenomenal filmmakers um, and he just understands character really well. He always has. Um, so Andor, like, like it's interesting when you watch him perform, he's, he's elevated the character. When you have a really great actor in a position like that, you're, there's a humanity and a grounded nature that you bring to him. And like, you're watching what you what I felt like was a drama about a character and his arc. Right. But obviously there's star Wars and the, and all the world that that brings. Um, but Knowing that he dies at the end of Rogue One, attempting to steal the Death Star plans, but like I just, I just still liked and enjoyed spending time with him, knowing where he was going. It was kind of like Black Widow in a sense, where like I, you know, we all knew Natasha died at the end of Endgame, but they still made it an intriguing story that built her character out more, at least in the first two acts of that film, even though I knew she died later on. Um, so. The first episode I thought was solid. Now, I, I granted, I, I want to be completely transparent here. I've seen Rogue One once. It was in theaters when it came out. Not seen it since, um, which is why I'm probably a little rusty on the specifics of the plot. So my interpretation of the first episode was based off of one viewing of Rogue One and one viewing of the episode. Um, 
and I thought it was good. I just Did you didn't get like a you know, Blade Runner vibe to it. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, there's no uh, for sure. And also one of the things that Jake we talk about with Rogue One, which was so cool, was the ground fighting, right? Like, like yeah. the fights on the ground. So I think a lot of what Andor seems to be from what I've seen is it's it's literally grounded, but also emotionally grounded in a way. Um, so I'm interested to see where it goes. I love Diego Luna, um, but I'm also probably not the, the best person to give a recommendation for this because I haven't seen Rogue One uh, more than once and I haven't mm-hmm. seen more than one episode, but I liked what I watched so far. I liked it better than the first episode's of Obi-Wan. I liked it better than Obi-Wan. I liked it better than yeah. Book, of Bo- Book of Boba Fett. Um, you know, Mandalorian is still really special. I think that, Mando's that, the best. Mando's, see, to, to me, and again, I haven't seen the next two episodes of Andor. Yeah. Um, using your statement, I would argue that Mando's the best thing I've seen from a series perspective. Okay. Um, but I still think Force Awakens is probably the best project I've seen that Disney has done with Star Wars. Jake, are you with me on that? Are you, uh, is Force Awakens the best thing Disney's done with Star Wars? Here, you know, I was I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know if I'll have in my lifetime a theatrical experience that was as like a theatrical buildup and payoff that was as special as Force Awakens. I, I just don't know if that can ever be replicated. So well, there's think so many about you as a kid seeing Phantom Menace, though. Yeah, but I got to be honest, th- there's th- th- going into I mean, Phantom Menace is just one of those things that like I was so excited about, but I also kind of like thought was like we were always told it was going to happen. Like we were always told episode one was going to happen. Right. Episode seven is a thing that none of us ever imagined would ever exist. Like yeah. Han, yeah. Leia and Luke all being back together in a film. So the build up to that and then it being as good as it was that, you know, so. My perception of whenever whenever I speak about Force Awakens or rank it compared to other Star Wars titles post the the Disney buy, it's it's skewed because there's such an X factor there of how special that movie and that experience was. It's just like Andor could be one of the best TV shows I've seen this year, and I really do hope it is. I haven't had I had to miss the um, the junket and the screenings um, because of a, a personal family thing, um, so I wasn't able to see it. I'll give you guys an update whenever I do. But it doesn't matter how good it is. There, there's no replicating that. I just have to be honest with myself in terms of like my feelings toward Force Awakens and and why it has the edge, because there's there's just an X factor there that you can't replicate. Uh, we will continue to track Andor as it goes. And then, uh, and then place the it in, um, in the ranking, Gabe. I guess so. Yeah, Gabe, we're going to do the tier list for that eventually. Absolutely. Good. We'll I think before then, though, we have She-Hulk. Which ends soon. It's good. You guys should watch it. It's fun. It's fun. Oh, I'm watching it. That's going to be a tough one. You guys, it's it, it's okay if there are things on the tier list that aren't A's. I know that you really like putting Marvel stuff in A's. But <laughs> all it's, right, it's fine. Okay. It's a B. It's <laughs> yeah, B. It's, it's, it's okay. Uh, all right. Uh, Sydney Poitier documentary is coming to Apple TV, and Jake Hamilton managed to catch it uh, because he did uh, an interview with someone you might have heard of before. Uh, Oprah Winfrey. So, Jakey, why don't you tell us about Sydney and also clue us in on how it's like interviewing Oprah? Well, well Kevin's done it before. Sean, have you? I'm not. I'm not, I'm not being uh, smartass. Have you interviewed Oprah before? I did. I got her for the Butler. Yes. Okay. So we all got her for the Butler. Um, I think Kevin got her for Wrinkle in Time. I um, and then yeah, I got her for for Sydney because uh, she's a producer on the film. She's a longtime friend of Sydney Poitier. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I love this movie. Um, I. 
pressed play because uh, for the junket because I knew I was going to be speaking with Oprah. And within 15 minutes, I was like, I just want to kind of like how you're describing Andor. I just want to watch this just because I'm fascinated. He had such a fascinating life long before he was ever. Uh, the person that, that we all sort of grew up in, I didn't grow up watching his, his, his stuff because he was already established by the time I was a kid. But I mean, he's just such a fascinating man that also there's so many layers to him in terms of who he was personally that was fascinating to me. There was a moment in his life. Um, he had done one film. He had a kid on the way. He needed the money. Um, he was still a struggling actor, uh, was offered a role that he didn't morally believe in. He, fe- he felt like the the character made choices that he didn't personally agree with. So he turned it down. And and that, I think, is such a microcosm example of, of who he is. I mean, keep, keep in mind the, the, the famous slap from In the Heat of the Night. You know, that it was originally just scripted to be the, the, the man slapping Sidney Poitier. And Peter Poitier came up, came up with the idea to slap him back. And that was a huge deal at that time. Um, you know, the, the, the movie he did with Tony Curtis, where he was like chained to Tony Curtis, uh, you know, where they were both criminals escaping. It, it, you know, th- there are so many great examples of like following his career, but also you have to keep in mind of like the legacy of who this guy was in the period in which he was him. Like in mm-hmm. the late 60s, yeah. in the late 60s, in the middle of, of like civil rights, he was the most popular actor in Hollywood yep. and making movies where it, him being a black man yeah. was a part of the plot. I mean, look, guess, guess who's coming to dinner? Like that, I mean, it was, yeah. he and was massive. Yeah. yeah. So the movie brings in all kind of A-listers who very much admit to being pr- the products of the progress the city made. You know, Denzel's in it and Spike Lee's in it and Halle Berry's in it. Oprah's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. All talk about being where they're at because of, you know, following the footsteps of Sidney Poitier. But just following him on a personal level, it, it also, you know, shines light on the fact, and, and I appreciate this in the documentary, that he wasn't a perfect man. You know, um, he was he was married and had children when, you know, he fell for uh, his his one of his co-stars. Like, you know, it, it doesn't you know, it, it very much talks about the idol and, and and the legend that he was in the industry. But it also shines light on him as a man, which I think is very important. I really appreciated it. It gave me um, an appreciation for someone I thought I knew, but I'm always down to learn more about him. It's a two hour documentary. I mean, if you're a fan of. Yeah, I, I won't even say like, oh, if you're a fan of Sidney Poitier, because maybe people listening haven't seen a ton of his work. Uh, if you're a fan of, of this industry and the history of this industry and the legacy of of watershed moments, I think you should watch it. And then I think it will make you want to retroactively go back and see some of his work either again or maybe for the first time. Is there a moment where um, he rides a plane to Houston uh, next to some fresh faced journalist who that uh, you know what? The, the, look, <laughs> sometimes you got to leave the good stuff on the cutting room floor, man. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. sometimes you got to. Yeah, I, I once sat next to Sidney Poitier on a flight, um, which 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 yielded one of my favorite celebrity photos I've ever taken, um, which was the trade off of, of me being quiet for three hours and uh, not not bothering him so he could close his eyes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, all right. So the David Bowie film uh, Moon Age Daydream is expanding wide and um i don't know if i've told you guys this at all but i hate david bowie like i'm i'm so wait not, i'm sorry what yeah i am not kevin you're muted i'm i'm we not a, are gonna have a problem here that's okay no no no, no wait no, no I, I genuinely don't think i've ever heard you say this and i'm a little like 
like, mind blown yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, we we can't just like go Life past on that. Mars is like a like a top ten song. Life on Mars and Space Oddity oh. are probably two of the greatest songs ever written. I, what do you I mean? Just, what do you mean you hate David Bowie? I don't like any of his music. You don't I, like that, Space that's, Oddity. That's what I mean. As I don't like any Life of his on music. Mars. No, you can, you can name titles all, right. all you want. I don't I'm gonna like sing it. Gabe, get the rights. Um, I just oh, yeah, feel like, <laughs> dude. Honestly, like that is that might be more shocking to me than you saying you don't like Lord of the Rings. But like but, David yeah. Bowie, but Lord is, of the Rings similar. It is, to, it is because David Bowie's not one sound. That's weird. Bowie's, but, like, but also to, what, what I love about Bowie is he's cinematic. Like his music is so cinematic. Like mm-hmm. Space Oddity, like plays like a film. Like it play, it has like an, it has arcs to it. It's a mate. Oh my god. Wait, David Sean. Bowie always just feels like he has his head up his own ass. Like that's, I don't have what? no interest in his music. I think you just have you the wrong impression. Are of, you sure of, that you're talking about the same David Bowie? David Bowie. He's, we talking, are? he's talking about a guy named David Bowie he went to high school with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, Dude, <laughs> I've never met anybody who doesn't like David Bowie. No, and I Not, never, I never, honestly, never understood. And you're any such of a the big music guy. Sean no, likes, know, but, but like Sean likes Bruce Springsteen. So what can I say? Well, Sean, listen, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to talk down or like, yo, like, dude, how can you not? I mean, there's things I like that or don't like that people love. Sure, but Bowie to me. I just feel like he's universal. I think that's beautiful. I'm glad that you feel that way, but I honestly so, have so, zero So go ahead and interest. give me a review on the David Bowie documentary, Sean. So I will oh never watch the David Bowie one, but it expands wide if anyone wants to check it out. I'd like to out. see it. I'd uh, like to see it. Tyler Perry also has a... It's also, oh my God, the way that they describe it, they're like, it's a psychedelic ride through Bowie's mind. And I'm like, that was awesome. shoot me in the head before I sit through <laughs> anything like that. Um, what? The Jazz Man's Blues is coming to Netflix. It's a Tyler Perry film. It seems like it's very different for uh, whatever Tyler Perry is doing, but I, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about it. It played at TIFF and got um, good, good to mixed reviews uh, for, for him. So check that out. Uh, we want to put on everybody's radar that the Avatar re-release is happening in 3D and 4K. Are you, are, wait, did you get the name of that movie right? Avatar. I don't think that's right. No? What is it? No. That joke went way over. <laughs> went, went well, well in my head. Burn Gully? Yeah. Is that Pocahontas? Um, yeah. But the movie that uh, two of us have seen uh, that I have not had a chance to yet is Don't Worry, Darling, a film that has received a lot of attention for its behind the scenes stuff. But we would like to focus primarily on the film itself. Um, And I'll start with Jake. Uh, Jake, this is Olivia Wilde's second film, uh, follow up to her Booksmart film and uh, to her directorial debut in Booksmart, which was well received. And... The trailer for this, I will say, uh, was incredibly intriguing. I didn't know what they were going for. I've heard it described as a Stepford Wives uh, sort of story. uh, And it looked like a powerhouse showcase for Florence Pugh. So is it all of those things? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's Stepford Wives meets another movie. I don't want to tell you, because if I tell you, then that kind of would ruin the movie for you. But what I am going to say is. I liked this movie, you know, Mm. take away all of the crap that we don't really like to focus on on this show. Uh, And honestly, forget the the, the whatever percentage on Rotten Tomatoes. I thought it's beautifully made. It's gorgeously shot. The production value is astounding. I thought there's a collection of performances that really impressed Florence Pugh, just effortlessly fantastic. I thought Harry Styles was really good in it. Olivia Wilde in a secondary part. Chris Pine has a really kind of like dark, mysterious, enigmatic role that like kind of kept me captivated. And here's what I'll say is that like the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm wondering like, what 
the hell is going on? Like, I was always wanting to keep watching to find out what was going on. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I, I, I feel like this is going to be one of those movies that I'm defending 10 years from now, even though, like, I'm not going to go as far as saying I loved it. I'm not going to use the L word, but I feel like weirdly defensive of this movie because I feel I feel like people have already made up their minds without having seen it based on factors that have nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. So I'm like weirdly dying on the hill for this movie, even though I'd give it like a three and a half out of five. Kevin, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to chat you the other movie that I think it's referencing. And so you tell me if I'm right or wrong. There's, um, there's while, like while seven Kevin, you, while Kevin, you go ahead and uh, that's not what I was going to say. No, okay. no, that's not yeah. it. Yeah, it's but, but that's interesting. But actually, yeah. that I, I want to see. Yeah, I would, too. There were seven films that the, that Don't Worry, Darling reminded me of. Um, oh. I'm not going to say them all, but um, there's seven movies that I could tell you right now that like and that was one of the but things when that, you say there's one big one. I'll, I'm yeah, going gonna, gonna, to message you. I'm going to message you ones. the one that I'm thinking of. Three big ones. OK. But is the you, one you're thinking of two words? Would you recommend it? Oh, so that's funny. That that one is not even part of my seven. Interesting. No, the, the one that <laughs> well, I think it's like. Yeah, I think there's three films that it's compl- that it's very similar to. OK, um, well, seven that I thought of. But uh, this is great audio for people. I just should just just privately chatting you what I want to think. <laughs> um. I like the film, too. Um, And again, we're a show that focuses on filmmaking in the process. So I'm thankful that we have an opportunity to actually speak about the movie versus the actual drama surrounding it. But um, Matthew Libatique, I want to point him out first because he he just shot The Whale for Aronofsky um, and he shot A Star is Born and Venom in the same year, which I thought was interesting. Um, (laughs) Really great DP. Um, And. To me, that's the star of the film. I mean, Florence Pugh's performance is outstanding. It is riveting. It is horrifying. It is engaging. She's unbelievable. Um, and but she always is, in my opinion, she's always great. It's it's like a Midsommar level type performance where it's really, really, really. There's a lot of things that she can do that are scene chewing. Um, there was a moment where she wraps her head in, in uh, cellophane. Was that what, what that was, Jake? That, yeah. that scene home i think it's in the trailer that scene took my breath away it was shot and designed beautifully um i think what's interesting is the conversation we were just having my biggest problem with the film is i kept going oh this reminds me of that or reminds me of this or Mm -hmm. and there are literal the the major one that i think the film reminds me of which i won't say there is literally a line of dialogue in don't worry darling that is the exact line of dialogue from the movie that i'm referring to um, so that's another whole nother interesting layer to it. Uh, I thought Harry Styles was solid. I also thought he was great in Dunkirk. So I, I'm, I'm, I think that I think he's extremely talented and uh, I'm very happy to see what he's doing uh, with his career. Um, my, so I think it's interesting. Like I love, I loved the film until kind of the ending. I, I thought the, the film is building up to a certain twist or, or, or reveal that I didn't think was on the level of what the buildup gave it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the film really works well until the, until the reveal, until you, I mean, this is not a, it's not a spoiler to say there's a reveal. The move, the trailer gives you an idea of a mystery. We don't sure, know what's sure, going sure. on in this, in this suburban neighborhood. Um, what's happening. It's what's weird going on. Um, and whatever that happens to be, 
I didn't find to be as as intriguing as the build up to it. Okay. Um, it was a little bit of a letdown. Um, that being said, though, I'm with you know I'm with Jake at three and a half, three and a half through four range because I do think it's a solid film, and you got to take out. I don't think it's as good as Booksmart, and I know they're two completely different movies. I think Booksmart is a better directed film. I really do. Um, weirdly enough, I would argue that the strongest points of this film are Florence and Matthew Libatique's, uh, uh, cinematography. Mm. I don't think, mm. um, I think weirdly the direction is lacking slightly. Um, and I think Olivia Wilde is a really good director. I mean, I think Booksmart was outstanding. Um, I think that don't worry, darling works. It actually has some really uh, important things to say about control, um, trying to control this perfect life that we think we should be live, leaving, living. Um, Chris Pine, excellent. Olivia Wilde's actually really good in the movie. Um, obviously, we know she's a really good actor. And um, I, I and I do think that she is a really good director. I just think that this film, it, it it's really, to me, is the buildup to something that wasn't as impressive as I had hoped. Um, and I think they're building up for so long that that reveal needs to hit. And it just mm-hmm. didn't hit for me. Um, but overall, I, I recommend it. Put the drama aside. I mean, there's been drama in cinema for decades, decades and decades and decades. Oh, of um, course. It's just because social media has really kind of blown this one up. It just happened to make this film that it became bigger than the movie. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, it's a film that works. I think it's worth seeing for the shots and Florence's performance. She's outstanding in it. Mm. Um, and it's 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 really well made. So I'm with Jake. It's like it's like I like the film. I don't love it, but I weirdly feel like. I have to have an asterisk when I say it to people. I'm like, I actually kind of like this movie because there, again, like Jake said, there's a, there's an inherent element of negativity already towards it without even knowing what the movie is about or what it's, or what it's going to be like. Um, and I think, you know, it's really hard to sit down and separate that, but if you can try to, because the movie that's being made for you on the screen is so different and separate from the drama that we're seeing out in the world that I think it, you have to be able to separate those two. Okay. Our blend game this week is uh, dedicated to John Boyega, uh, who has a film in uh, theaters or on streaming uh, called Breaking. I'm, I never know what it was. Uh, it was at a theatrical release uh, for a few weeks. It might still be lingering in theaters, but now you can get it on demand. So okay. like if you go on your iTunes or whatever, you can, I don't know if it's a rental or a purchase, mm. uh, but it is available in your homes through on demand services. Okay. Also, uh, Boyega is in The Woman King and is terrific Phenomenal as good. Uh, the king of the, the kingdom that is defended by the uh, Ogoji. So um, he's having a good month, necessarily. Um, but when we go back and pick our favorite John Boyega movies, I'm going to say mine, and then you guys can tell me if you agree. I mean, my choice is Force Awakens. Yeah. Is that everyone else's choice? Yeah. Mine is actually Attack the Block. Oh, is it? Good. All right. So we'll come back to Kevin in a second. Um, I, I, I will bring up Force Awakens uh, and and rave about it for this reason. I never thought that we would find a movie that captured the the thrill uh, and the excitement and the whimsy and uh, and the sense of creativity that came with seeing Star Wars for the first time. And uh, OK, so people are going to make fun of it and say, well, that's because they just made Star Wars <laughs> again. They made a new no. hope. But yeah. there's uh, but <laughs> there's yeah. more to it than that. Um, because the cast, yeah, has you're to right. Work. They did. They did it with new characters. The cast has to work. 
Um, it has to have a, a, a new polish to it, of which J.J. Uh, does a very good job of uh, aping uh, in this instance, Lucas, that he's usually sort of copying from Spielberg every once in a while. Um, and I loved John Boyega's character, Finn, in The Force Awakens specifically. Now, I'll argue that I think his character gets uh, short shrifted over the rest of the trilogy, and I think he's completely mishandled um, because the idea of a stormtrooper rebelling against um, his conditioning to become a stormtrooper is a fascinating idea. Uh, and I feel like they needed to do a lot more with that. And it almost makes me wonder what direction that they were planning on going with him because of the way that he's used over the course of the rest of the films. Um, but he's great. He's great. I mean, I love you can go all the way back to him being the first shot in the trailer, essentially, of him, you know, popping, him popping into frame. Yep. I mean, that just sets the tone for what's coming in in that in that movie. And that movie's a it's it's a perfectly calculated uh, although it didn't come out in summer, but a perfectly calculated sort of summer blockbuster ride. Uh, it, it pushes all the right buttons. It delivers everything that it needs to be. And Boyega being a big part of that, his chemistry with Daisy Ridley is terrific. Um, he when he and, and Daisy and Oscar Isaac are together, they do form a trilogy or a, a, a trio that is as fun, while not quite as iconic, you know, as the Han, Luke and Leia dynamic. Um, which each of them playing different different bits kind of thing. Uh, and I just think Boyega was terrific in it. And um, he got to wield a, a lightsaber. And I know that like that. I know that, that was incredibly cool for him. And uh, one of the coolest things was watching him do the reaction video when he saw the trailer for the first yes, time. Yes. When his family right? that he was holding his uh, his lightsaber. So that was really, really cool. So, Wasn't he with like family and friends or something in that yeah, video? Yeah, there was yeah that was so cool. Watching yeah. the trailer for the first time. So, uh, yeah, I love him. I love Finn in this movie. I think he's great. And, um, and so that's my choice. That's my choice. The Force Awakens. Jakey also chose it. Jake, what else do you have to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much more to add because you said it perfectly. I mean, I also love the dynamic between him and Harrison Ford. They all get yeah. to, they, you know, they basically get to spend the last act together. And it says a lot that that an actor can do something that makes Han Solo even better. But like, I feel like he brought a lot out of Harrison Ford and out of Han Solo and kind of gave him um, the opportunity to do some things with, with Han that we really hadn't seen before, before obviously ended up, we ended up losing him. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's made all the more tragic by the fact that you're right. They, they completely didn't know what to do with um, with the character of Finn in Last Jedi and uh, in Rise of Skywalker to the point where like they kind of sent him on aimless side missions and I'm not mm -hmm. going to get into the Last Jedi debate but it's I mean but I, but he's he's just a, a much a, a part of why Force Awakens work works as anyone else in that movie um, as opposed to with the, in the other ones it basically just becomes the, the Kylo Ren and Rey story mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a shame but I thought I thought it was brilliant his dynamic with uh, you know, the the new cast members as well as holding his own with with Harrison uh, just really says a lot. And um, it's you know, it's a it's a shame what happened. But but I, I just genuinely love him in that and obviously love that film. Kev, you are not wrong by choosing attack. The oh, block. Yo, I love attack the block. That's a great choice. We're supposed to get so, a sequel, right? It's coming. Yeah. Attack yeah. the blocks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's coming. Yeah. With uh, Joe funny. Cornish, Joe Cornish directing it. So Force Awakens is like is the film of the two that I would prefer to watch, even though I love attack the block, mm -hmm. but I have to give perspective on like, again, this is a personal choice, right? A personal reason. So when I first watched attack the block, it was like, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Um, I didn't know who John Boyega was. Mm -hmm. Right. So, 
you know that feeling when you watch a film and you realize you're watching a star? Yeah. Like you're watching somebody who's about to blow up. Like, 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 I don't know. There's something about like, oh, you know, the, the last time this happened to me was the kid who plays Eddie Munson in um, Stranger, Stranger Things, things. Yeah. Joseph Quinn. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember watching those episodes, didn't know who he was. And I, I was looking at the screen going, oh, this guy is going to be big. Like this guy is he's electrifying on screen. Um, and I just remember, atta- first of all, Attack the Block is just awesome in its style and its and its execution. Um, and Joe Cornish directed it. And Steve, I think it's Stephen Price is one of his first scores, the guy who ended up scoring Gravity. Um, and I just remember watching it, loving the vibe, loving the the energy of the characters. I mean, he plays a character named Moses, who's, you know, the, he's the lead in the film. And I believe it's Boyega's first movie. Um, and yeah, so I think he was like 18 or something. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting because I've interviewed Boyega so many times over the years now for all three Star Wars films. And uh, we just got him for Breaking and we got him for Woman King. And he's really, really grown up so much. And like, it's almost like he's like past that attack the block phase. Like he's in a very different space where he's, you know, he's very adamant about making important films now, films that are important to him, like Breaking, telling that story or Woman King, telling that story. He's very, very prominent in that world of like, I want to bring my th- these stories to the forefront that I think are important. Um, and I, th- I love that he's doing that because Star Wars gave him a platform that was bigger than and larger than life. Right. And I think what's funny about Force Awakens was going into it when they cast him. I was like, oh, hell yes. I loved him and attack the block. Yeah, I'm all in. And not only just obviously with Harrison Ford and and, and Carrie Fisher and everybody returning. But there was something that I had a level of excitement just based on that performance of Attack the Block. Um, and I just remember digging that film. It was kind of like, I don't know how to, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but it kind of reminded me of like a modern day um, uh, Guy Ritchie. And I'm not saying the tone of Attack the Block and and uh, and Guy Ritchie's movies are the same. The but there was, a fresh, there was a freshness to it. There was, yeah. a, there was like a spark to it. It was new. It felt like, I don't know, it was something Attack the Block had its own vibe. Well, it did something but, no film had done before. Right. It's it did, but that. it but it but it spoke in a way where I was like, do you remember seeing like Guy Ritchie's movies for the first time and you go, Oh, I I, I dig the way these characters talk, I dig the way I dig the environment. Yeah. And I think Joe Cornish did something different with Attack the Block, but it was similar in a way that it, it was a vibe. Has Cornish caught done on anything to it. And I was like, since then? He did that uh kids' movie about um the kid uh the was it the, it the night something? It would be the, King? yeah. He, he did, did that. that. Did he? Yeah. That's Joe Cornish, I believe. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, so I I think that Attack the Block is my choice only because it was my it was my introduction to Boyega. Um, and it's the movie I always think about when I think of him. Um, I know Star Wars and Finn is, are probably like obviously his most iconic. Um, but Attack the Block is that one that I always go to. I'm like that movie. And it's also a great movie to recommend to people. Absolutely. If, if you've never seen it. You go, hey, watch this movie called Attack the Block. It's freaking awesome. Yep. And then generally everybody who watches it goes, yes, that was awesome. I'm really glad. <laughs> so, I, one of the cool things I feel like about there being a sequel is that it will introduce the original mm-hmm. to people who've never seen it. They'll be like, and the okay, original well, didn't do well, I don't think. I think it, I, I think it under, under I, I was reading that it didn't do well at the box office. It's one of those movies that kind of found, it found movie fan audiences. Sure. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Attack the Block kind of fell into the film Twitter circle of like remember that oh, great guys, shot of him this out 
walking or no running in slow motion with like the monsters chasing. But that's such a cool shot, dude. And the monster, like the effects in that film, the glowing teeth. It's a low budget movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and like what Cornish did with the effects and like the world building, it felt like a large production. And this was like a, you know, I don't know what the budget was on it, but it definitely wasn't Star Wars. It's not far (laughs) off from what like Edgar Wright did with like Shaun of the Dead. Right. You know, that Edgar Wright's probably another great example of kind of where I was going with that Guy Ritchie comment was like, there's just like a, when you watch Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, there's a there's a vibe that Edgar brings to it that's like fresh and like the editing and the, like the, you know, it, again, very different. But think about the first time you saw Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. You, you get Aronofsky's vibe. You get that voice. You get that. So like it was like I just think Greatest about that moment. America. Thank you. Yeah. But I think about Joe Cornish <laughs> and I just think about like, oh, Attack the Block was just like a new vibe. It was yeah. cool. It was like it was fresh. It was unique. Um, It felt cool and it felt like it was made with genuine passion of like kids who just wanted to make an awesome movie well, so rachel ho uh agrees with you and she said attack the block so uh, good harry lickman and john palmer went with uh finn in star wars now they just threw out a blanket finn in star wars yeah so come on we don't but that's we don't play that game how we play the game here uh Dino well, no Paolo. it's 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 favorite performance it's movie or performance for yeah oh don't bail them out gabe well no okay. it is it's a character that he plays <laughs> performance is finn uh, Dino Paulo and Zach Abdul Baki said uh, Detroit. Catherine Bigelow's mm, film. He's fantastic in Detroit. Oh, I forgot about De- Detroit. Was uh, so yeah, he was great in that. Seth picked. Uh, Seth picked Breaking, and then he's great in Breaking. Maniac Mike says Red, White, and Blue from the Small Axe series. The Steve, oh the yeah, Steve yeah, yeah. McQueen yeah. films mm. that he made. So. Uh, thank you very much, everyone who who participated in this week's. Uh, John Boyega blend game. And speaking and so, of John Boyega, the woman king, if you haven't heard our interview with uh, Gina Prince Bythe, uh, Bythewood. Do you always want to say, no, 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 no. I'm, I want to keep this in because do you always want to put an L in her name? Yes, I do. Say, oh, we, we, had this, we had this discussion yeah. on premium where I was like, I always want to call her Blythewood, yep. but it's Bythewood. Yeah, that's where I get, I get caught up. I'm like, yeah. I'm like I, I, don't know I, think I'm, I think it's, I think I'm combining Bly Manor for some Maybe. weird reason with because her last name, because she obviously Danner. did love in basketball. Maybe Blythe so. Danner. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it is a fantastic interview. It is a fantastic. Yeah, it's very good. Two of them. So go check that out. Okay, so for next week, uh, Gabe, I need some clarification here because we are playing a a, a uh, blend game called hashtag double feature blend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah. let us know your pick via email at realblend at cinemablend.com or using the hashtag double feature blend. But give me some parameters for this. Um, parameters, favorite double feature. So <laughs> yeah, so what movie movies you want to watch? And, and this doesn't have to be like, so, um, you know, pour your heart out love story about a double feature. Although if you have a great story about, I went to, you know, to a drive-in theater and I saw this double feature, this is the favorite double feature I ever saw. I love that. But I also think we can treat this as like pitching a double feature that you really like. We're getting into okay. the fall season, which is for me is double feature season. Mm-hmm. When I'm, oh, when I do wow. a lot of sitting down watching particularly horror movies, but I think moving forward, we'll come back to this and we'll give it more specific parameters of like horror double feature or thriller double feature or okay. comedy double, you know, things like that. Um, so this is just a general double feature. I would love to hear folks at home. Are you guys your favorite double feature experience? Okay. Um, but if you don't have one and you just want to pitch a double feature that you love, just send us two movies that you think are make for a great back to back viewing. I know Jake and I have one that we both love and I don't know if it's cheating because it was released as a double feature. We'll find out next week. Jake, come on. 
What movie did you? What what is what is the one movie you saw in a theater that was that was a double feature? I, okay, and now but for a moment I thought you were saying that, like we saw it together, and I was like, did we no, just, no, okay, I know you're but, talking about. But it okay. was. Uh, I will say it was the first time I ever interviewed this person who is now been on our show multiple times. <laughs> who could Under it possibly show. be? <laughs> I mean, we've had multiple. What double on the feature show was released times. as one movie that someone right. could have. <laughs> Before At least four move, times. Before we move on to the <laughs> closing, I want to double back uh, to point out uh, that this is who Rami Malek uh, beat in the Best Actor category. <laughs> this is oh, a wow. Way. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Well, one of them, I think, is sitting on that. Is one of them Bradley Cooper? Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born. Uh, Christian Bale for Vice. Because Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate, and Viggo Mortensen for Green Book. Bradley Cooper deserved to win that award. Yeah, he 100%. maybe. Yeah. 100%. Bradley Cooper, or I would have been happy with Christian Bale. I would have been happy with Bale as well. Bale was too. really good. Let's Dude. not overlook the fact that Viggo Mortensen ate a pizza folded in half for he, for his he art. He was good in that really <laughs> middling movie. Yes. Have you he's rewatched? Yeah, he's great. Stars Born. Uh, not in a while. No. I it, it was on the other day, and I stopped for a second, and I I, I I'm not, not kidding. I actually had a double take of like, wait, is that really Bradley Cooper? Yeah. And like I'm like, this is a movie I've seen ten times. I we interviewed him for it. Like that is one of the best performances. And not only did he direct it, stars, sings, plays. He was on stages at real concerts in between sets playing. I mean, he, that in fact performance, did all the things Rami Malik didn't do. <laughs> but see, my argument on Rami Malik is that he embodied Freddie Mercury okay. in terms of like just the way he performed. I mean, okay. I, I know the film is there's there's controversy about like what it did and what it cut out and things like that. I'm just talking about like and it's literal he just, edits. He he literally to me became him in terms at least on the live aid thing. Uh, I think that was unbelievable. We will not litigate uh, the best actor race in 2019. I believe that is. Hey, we do uh, do that on our premium feed sometimes when we do the Oscars in review. So hey, and, and in the we haven't done one of those in a while. While well, you're kind of caught up. Speaking about premium, uh, check the description for this episode to find out how you can sign up for it. It gets you a free episode on Mondays. Uh, it gets you a newsletter and it gets you an ad free version of the live show. Um, follow us online throughout the week for all of our insights into movies and pop culture uh, at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV at Sean underscore O'Connell at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Real Blend. We'll be back next week with uh I believe we're going to have the bros interviews, right? John Apatow, Nicholas Stoller. Yes, sir. We also will have a bonus up on Wednesday featuring another interview. And it escapes me. Oh, if we did, if we did, if we did Nick and Judd as the bonus, it could be a bronus episode. (laughs) I believe I believe we'll also have a Wednesday episode. We have a few things that are funny. We should do that just to just to be funny like that. And then uh, oh, well, yeah, just can we say that we we, we have we also inter- recorded with Andrew Dominic for yes. Blonde. Oh, so right. Yeah, we're going to have that coming up soon, coming too. Up and soon he didn't well too. he didn't do a lot of press for it. And that was a that was a very interesting experience. And, well, and also, we just learned today that Judd Apatow apparently didn't do a lot of press yesterday. Yeah. Nope. So that was kind of cool. But he wanted to do real blend. They actually reached out to us for that one. So those yeah. to show how special we are. Yeah. Time. That's we'll just like my social media account. That's we'll what we need. Jake's takes. Uh, we'll be back with um, new episodes. So talk to you next week. The Fablemans. Fablemans. It won, it won uh, Tiff's audience award. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 